Okay, this the sutta that we will examine today is called the Mahachatarisaka Sutta, the Discourse on the Great Order, and it's sutta number 117 in the Matimani Okay, the sutta opens when the Buddha announces to the monks, he says, I shall teach you noble right concentration with its supports and its requisites. I put, this is a very important phrase, so I put the Pali on the board. Then the Buddha raises the question, what is noble right concentration with its supports and its requisites? Okay, anyway, that's the way it's stated. He makes clear what is meant by the supports and the requisites. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and right mindfulness. In other words, the other seven factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And then the Buddha says, unification of mind or one-pointedness of mind, equipped with these seven factors, is called noble right concentration with its support and its requisites. Now this statement by the Buddha gives us a rather important and interesting perspective on the constitution of the Noble Eightfold Path. Usually one thinks of the Noble Eightfold Path as a series of steps that one practices, as aspects of training that one undertakes. But looked at from another angle, the Noble Eightfold Path is actually what we might call a constellation of mental factors working together within, even within a single moment of consciousness, a single mind moment. Within this moment of consciousness, each of these factors of the noble path functions not so much as a stage of training, but as a mental factor, a constituent of mind with its own distinctive function to perform, with its own contribution to make that state of consciousness a state of consciousness which is engaged with the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. So if one looks at the Noble Eightfold Path as a system of training, a step-by-step system of training, then one will say, one begins by acquiring right view, then one orders one's thoughts, directs one's thoughts in line with the second factor of the path, right thinking or right intention. Then one undertakes the three morality factors, right speech, right action, right livelihood, to provide a basis of sila. Then one trains in right effort, to purify the mind, 
one engages in the practice of right mindfulness through practicing satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness, and eventually by practicing satipatthana one gains samadhi or right concentration. That is the usual way of looking at the Noble Eightfold Path. But in this sutta, the Buddha is taking the Noble Eightfold Path as a particular state of consciousness. The state of consciousness which is arrived at at the highest point of practice where it becomes, that state of consciousness becomes a state of deep absorption or samadhi, concentration. And this state of concentration, Rama Samadhi, doesn't exist in isolation from all the other earlier stages of practice, but rather as one is practicing right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, one is strengthening with each act of practice, with each occasion of practice, one is strengthening seven particular mental factors, which are the supports and requisites of right concentration. And so as one goes on practicing, one is strengthening these mental factors, and when right concentration is achieved, sama, samadhi, these other seven factors don't fall away, but rather they are all absorbed into that state of right concentration and they each fulfill a particular task in the fulfillment of the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Buddha uses these two expressions, which I think are, they both have their special significance. He says, sa upanisa, sa parikara. And I think the reason why he uses two terms supports and requisites is to indicate two different ways in which these other seven factors function. First, they are called support, upanisa. You could say a support is a decisive cause, a strong um, Okay, a strongly operative cause which will serve as a preliminary or a, well, a requisite or, I'm sorry, it will serve as a preliminary requisite for the achievement of a particular end. So when we say that the seven factors are the support for right concentration this means that in order to achieve right concentration one has to fulfill, at least to some extent, the other seven factors. From this angle, we could say the other seven factors are like steps of a staircase. Seven steps, and right concentration is like the landing at the top of the staircase. The final result or goal 
of the other seven factors of the path. Okay, but the other expression used, saparikara, means with, here we use the word requisites, but I think it would be better to use the word with its accompaniment, well, accompaniment or accompanying factors. You might even say it's entourage, entourage of coexisting factors. And when we focus on this, term, then we can see that the other seven factors of light concentration are not so much here steps leading up to right concentration, but mental factors that coexist with right concentration. They are like the, um, you say the, <laughs> when the president comes to a meeting, then there's always a entourage of ministers around her, or maybe bodyguards who are protecting her. They don't, when she enters the auditorium, the bodyguards don't drop away, but they remain stationed in the auditorium, maybe at seven vital parts in order to protect her. And so in this case, we have these seven factors as accompaniments of right concentration. Or you might even compare this maybe to the solar system with the sun here like right concentration and the other seven factors like seven planets circling around the sun. And now the Buddha, in order to indicate that he's using this or emphasizing this psychological analysis of the Noble Eightfold Path, he defined right concentration as unification of mind, or one-pointedness of mind. That is, the expression is chitta-se-kagata. From a more practical angle, one thinks of samadhi as being a particular meditative state, some kind of state of deep absorption, in a persisting object. But when the Buddhist texts, when they take this sort of psychological, psychoanalytical perspective, then they investigate a state of consciousness into its numerous components. They dissect it. And they find that the state of consciousness consists of a multitude of mental factors, each performing its distinct function. And within these many different states of consciousness, there is one mental factor which has the function of focusing the mind on its object, or we could say unifying the mind on its object. This mental factor is called Chitase kakata, one-pointedness of mind. And this mental factor of one-pointedness of mind is present in many states of consciousness which one would not normally think of as a state of meditative samadhi, meditative absorption. Even when one is focusing on, say, listening to my talk, then there's a certain unity of the mind which is constantly 
listening to the world. If one is maybe preparing a meal, cooking, in order to cook the meal successfully, you have to focus the mind on what you're doing. It's a little different. It's different from mindfulness. Mindfulness is being attentive to what one is doing. But this one point in this is having the mind fixed or focused on what one is doing. Unified, so that the mind is not distracted, wandering, straying outwardly. When an artist paints a picture, he has to keep the mind focused on his artwork. Otherwise, it'll just be chaos for us all. A musician has to keep the mind focused on the musical score what he's playing. There's even Mitya Samadhi, even an assassin who has to assassinate um, some victim. If he pulls out the gun to aim it and get it to hit the target, he has to have the mind focused and unified. You could say that's a wrong Samadhi. Okay, but now when the Buddha speaks of noble right concentration, he means not any kind of concentration, but rather this one, not any kind of one-pointedness of mind, but rather this one-pointedness of mind which has been arrived at through the practice of these seven other factors and which is accompanied by the other seven factors. And now the Buddha is going to sort of go back to the beginning and show in some detail the meaning of these other seven factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. So actually in detail he only deals, strangely I have to say, with five of them. Okay, first he takes right view and he says, right view comes first. Often it's thought that right view can be simply equated with the panya, with wisdom that comes through the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. But actually to begin the practice, for it to really be the practice of the truly Noble Eightfold Path is taught by the Buddha, one has to begin with some element of right view. We could say that right view is the eye of the practice and the other seven factors maybe are like the legs of the practice. And so right view comes first because the practice of the path has to be guided by some understanding of the basic laws of reality, the laws of existence. And the Buddha says, <coughs> and he makes a very important statement, how does right view come first? Then he gives the answer, one understands wrong view as wrong view and right view as right view. This is one's right view. That is, one has to begin acquiring right view or to acquire right view. From the very beginning, one has to have some discrimination between what is a wrong view and what is a right view. 
many people think that there's no need to come to an understanding of the Dhamma intellectually, that one just practices and leaves conceptualization behind, that it's a way to get into some completely non-conceptual, non-intellectual state of higher consciousness, uh, super-consciousness. But actually, from beginning to end, the practice is a path of understanding. When the understanding is fully mature, then one penetrates the ultimate truth, the what's called the Four Noble Truths. But even at the very beginning, one needs some ability to discriminate between what is a wrong view, michatiti, a misleading and even, we could say, a dangerous view which leads one astray, and what is right view, the view which will lead one forward to the ultimate goal of the path. And since there are so many different philosophical views, religious views, ethical views, even um, cultural views, ethnically based views, one needs some guideline of understanding from the very beginning. And so the Buddha emphasizes here this importance of discriminating between wrong view and right view. Then he takes as the example of wrong view, he points to the view which is the most detrimental, most destructive type of wrong view. This is called the nihilistic view, the view which utterly denies any significance to morality, any connection between our actions and the quality, the experience quality of our life. This view was held at the time of Buddha, generally just by a small group of nihilistic <coughs> philosophers. Now, I have to say, <laughs> it's become the underlying view which dominates politics, uh, culture, entertainment, business, advertising, just about everything in the world is run on the basis of this view. And if one stands up to protest against it, <laughs> one has to be very careful because there will be sophisticated legal, legal specialists who are on the lookout for somebody transgressing on the rights of others and they might drag one to court and <laughs> bring up a legal case against you. Okay, this is the view that there is no point in practicing giving no point in making offerings, no point in making sacrifices. Here the Buddha means not animal sacrifices, but we, what we could call self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. This is the kind of idea which is bandied about by people who think we should, this is the only life we live, we should enjoy ourselves to the hilt right here and now, if you acquire wealth, no need to share with others, to make offerings to religious practitioners, no point in practicing dana and giving, or you can do a little bit if it will enhance your prestige in the community, 
but you should really just try to accumulate as much wealth and possessions as you can. Since this is the only life, enjoy yourself now. Okay, then they say there is no fruit or result of good and bad actions. Somebody might be very pious, generous, kind, self-sacrificing. Another person might be cruel, selfish, ambitious, cruel, cruel, even brutal. But their good and bad deeds don't produce any kind of karmic results. They just enjoy whatever experiences come to them in this life. Then when death takes place, everything is finished and both the virtuous person and the um, cruel and brutal person both will eventually wind up as just a body, dead bodies, which are to be burned in the crematorium and the ashes scattered (coughs) to the wind. So there's no fruit or result of good and bad actions. That there's no this world, of course there's this world, but what they mean is that there's no, I say no result of action, no fruit of karma ripening in a rebirth into this world. And there's no other world, no heavens, no hell, but one just, after one passes away, then there's no rebirth in any other realm. Um, There's no mother, no father. It doesn't mean that they deny that people are born as parents, but rather what they mean is that there's no point in serving and helping one's parents. Even now, many people in the West have this idea that, okay, our parents gave birth to us, that was their decision, that was their action, but we're just all in this struggle for competition together. If I can push them out of the way to serve my advantage, I might as well do so. And that's why we find in the West there's been a rather complete breakdown of the old traditional family system where children take it as their responsibility to support their parents and look after the parents, but rather they take advantage of their parents as they're growing up and when the parents get old then they just get married go off with their family and leave the parents to fend for themselves yeah what evidence do you have this sense of rather overgeneralized charge that this is done in the west i'm not sure i'm not saying that it's done universally in the west but i think it's quite common that there are homes for the aged and then children instead of taking care of their parents, they just put them in the homes for the aged. And even I've heard this is a terrible thing, but uh, was it you who told me about yes. the granny dumping? The granny dumping. The, you say this thing that, yeah. Yes. When you have an old grandmother or an old grandfather who is unfortunately suffering from a debility like Alzheimer or something like that, so these people, they cannot cope with them. They are so heartless that they are traveling with these old people who cannot speak anymore, take away their identifications, 
put them in their wheelchair in, in a train, push them into a supermarket and go out. That is called granny dumping. Yeah. I'm not saying that it happens everywhere, <laughs> but it is a widespread phenomenon. Okay, so no mother, no father, no beings who are reborn spontaneously, but there's no, in other words, no rebirth of beings in these other worlds in which beings just arise spontaneously. That's in the Buddhist conception of the heavens, the hells. There are such realms in which beings just arise purely through the force of karma without any other mode of gen generation. Okay, and then they say there's no good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins in the world who have realized for themselves by direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world. Of course they see, at least if they're living in Asian countries, they see ascetics and Brahmins and, and wanderers going about, but they don't believe that they are practicing any kind of higher, a program of higher spiritual development. They think these fellows who go around with the alms bowl, they're just lazy wastrels, parasites on the social system, too lazy to work for a living, or else that they're just living in delusion, wasting their time, cheating themselves out of the one opportunity for enjoyment right here and now. And when they speak, when the ascetics and Brahmins speak about other realms of existence, then they say, these uh, thinkers say, that's a lot of humbug in that sense. <laughs> Don't believe a word of it. He's just trying to win your confidence, so he's going to cheat you. I, I know these monks, they're all cheaters. <laughs> they all they speak highfalutin phrases, but they just have their eye on your pocketbook. Don't, don't, don't give a penny to them. <laughs> okay, so these, all these ideas are comprised under wrong view. And this is just one particularly notorious sample of wrong view that the Buddha pinpoints here, specifies here. But in the suttas, if we look through the suttas, he's spoken about a whole variety of wrong and misleading views particularly in the Samanyapala Sutta, the second sutta of the Diganikaya, he explains about the six views of the outside teachers, which were all condemned by his teaching. And in the Brahmajala Sutta, he speaks about 62 erroneous speculative views. Okay, now this, we come to the passage on right view. And this is, I have to say, it's a very, very interesting passage because I think, to my knowledge, this is the only text in the whole canon, in the whole Sutta Bhittaka, where the Buddha makes, for five factors of the path, makes a distinction between two types of path factors, what he'll call the or what will be called later in the commentaries, 
the mundane path and the super mundane path, the Lokya Magga and the Lokutra Magga. And singly, Laukika Marga and Lokotara Marga. In fact, everywhere else where you read about the Noble Eightfold Path, and the Buddha mentions the eight factors, one just assumes that they all have an identical meaning. But here, for these first five factors, he again bifurcates them, each factor, into two kinds which pertain to these two paths, the mundane and the supermundane. Okay, so he begins here, paragraph six. And what bhikkhu is right view? Right view, I say, is twofold. There is right view that is affected by... I'll read it first and I'll explain each of the terms. Right view that is affected by taint, partaking of merit, ripening on the side of attachment. It's a little obscure. And there is right view that is noble, taintless, super mundane, a factor of the path. Okay, so now the right view that pertains to the mundane path is said to be affected by taints. That means sasava. The taints are the asavas, which we've explained quite a few times already. The asapas are those very deeply grounded defilements which keep the round of becoming, the round of samsara in motion. When one achieves liberation or arhatship, that is the state in which the asapas are utterly destroyed. But now this right view is not itself this mundane right view. It's not a defiled state. This is a very subtle distinction. It's a purifying state, a worthy and good, wholesome, virtuous view. But this view is still not able to give liberation. This view by itself is not able to give liberation. It's not able to, it does not itself conduce to Nibbana, to final deliverance. And so we say that this right view, though good and worthy, it's still connected with, in some deep way, with the taints that keep samsara revolving, or keep the round of existence revolving. And then the Buddha says that this view partakes of merit. It's on the side of merit, punya, punya. So if one has this right view, then it will be, just to have the right view by itself is already meritorious because it's a right, the principle of correct understanding. And also if one has this right view, then it will induce you to engage in meritorious deeds. Somebody who has wrong view, this utter materialist who just believes in seeking his own advantage here and now, generally he won't do meritorious deeds. 
or if he does, then it will just be a way of gaining name and fame, maybe as a safe investment in case there is an afterlife, but he's not really concerned with his future well-being. But when one has this mundane right view, then one will engage in meritorious deeds in order to gain merit to, so that one will have a secure future in one's continued existences in the realm of rebirth. And thirdly, this view is described as ripening on the side of attachment, upadri vipaka. The rendering here is not so good. Upadri means the five aggregates. These are, we might call, property that one possesses, or even we could call it one's acquisition. Now I would translate this ripening in the acquisition, but that's a little obscure too. But what it means is this right view, this mundane right view, will lead one back into a new state of existence in which one picks up, acquires the five aggregates, a new state of body and mind. And then, in contrast to that, we have this other type of right view, which the Buddha says is noble. This is the real Aryan right view, the right view of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's taintless in that it's not associated with these basic defilements in any way. It's actually the right view which will bring about the eradication of the defilements. And it's lokutara, super mundane, utterly beyond the world of the five aggregates. It's the right view, which is a factor of the path, a factor of this truly super mundane noble eightfold path. This is the right view that leads to nibbana, to ultimate liberation. Okay, and now the Buddha will specify the distinction between these two types of right view. Okay, what is the right view that is affected by things and so on? Basically, it's the right view, which is the exact opposite of all of those types of wrong view that I just mentioned. In other words, it's the right view which affirms the value of practicing giving, making offerings, of self-sacrifice, which says that good and bad deeds produce their results in a future life, and so the one who does good deeds will meet with a happy rebirth, success, prosperity, fortunate experiences, he will meet with good friends, and have a pleasant existence. Whereas the one who does bad deeds will accumulate bad karma, and that bad karma will propel him into a bad mode of rebirth, so that he meet with much pain and <coughs> That is right view of karma and its fruits. Such a one believes that rebirth can take place into this world, into other worlds, 
that there is an obligation to support and help one's mother and father, that there are beings, he believes that there are beings who are reborn spontaneously in other realms of existence, and he has trust and confidence in good and virtuous ascetics and Brahmins and believes their teaching about this world and the world beyond. Okay, this is the right view, we could say, which is a foundation for a moral and spiritual life and which is indispensable for advancing beyond the level of mundane right view to the level of super-mundane right view. So if somebody does not accept these principles of mundane right view, he's a skeptic about karma, a skeptic about rebirth, uh, he denies basic moral values, or, or let's say denies that there's an objective foundation for moral values, but maybe he wants to practice meditation in order to reach enlightenment, it doesn't work. <laughs> because in order to gain enlightenment, one has to use the supramundane right view. And in order to, for the supramundane right view to arise, one has to have a foundation, a basis of the mundane right view. Would it not be better if we put two names for these two views? In the English language, we have this low-cultural samadhiti, this laukika samadhiti. If we would call the laukika samadhiti right foundation of thinking, while low-cultural we would call uh, right view. Because out of your speech, I can only see that the foundation right foundation of thinking is at least is valid for the uh, laukika samadhiti. I think one might explain it as a right foundation of thinking. Foundation so I still prefer I to use no. the word view because it's a way of understanding things. It's a way of understanding. Um, yeah. Right, the Arya Pugala, the noble person, will not have wrong views. Yeah. But now we're still at the stage of the path, not yet coming to that level just at the preliminary stage. Okay, so one has this foundation of, um, okay, foundation, this preliminary right view, the right view which is the basis for morality, the basis for living a moral, morally upright life, and the basis for practicing, undertaking the practice in order to reach the supermundane, the liberated path. Excuse me? Yeah. What do you mean by the first two? Well, let's say all those who have the wrong view will be Prutujanus, 
it wouldn't be possible to know what the current is to do the world and how the young man is to smart travel to the people. Okay, now the Buddha says, and what monks is the right view that is noble, taintless, super mundane, a factor of the path? Then he gives the definition, which, well, first I'll read it, then I'll have to explain my problem with it. Okay, he says, it's the wisdom which is, say, the wisdom which is the faculty of wisdom, the power of wisdom, the investigation of states, enlightenment factor, the path factor of right view in one with the noble mind, this is the Arya Chitta, whose mind is taintless, one with the Anasapa Chitta, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. This is right view that is noble, taintless, super mundane, a factor of the path. Okay, before I come to this now to explain these terms, what strikes me as rather strange and rather sort of ta- a tantalizing problem, <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing the Buddha, <laughs> but when the Buddha explains this path factor, he doesn't give the content of the right view. He doesn't say what it is that this right view apprehends but rather he just gives a list of other factors <laughs> that come within the suttas, within the teaching, which could be equated with this super mundane right view. In fact, it seems to me, I have to say, <laughs> that this passage is at the risk of heresy and excommunication, <laughs> that it's the work of the compilers of the canon <laughs> rather than perhaps of the Buddha himself wouldn't it be that it is the same as you mentioned in the beginning? You said that uh, I think a mental state yeah. is an entourage around an idea. Yeah, yeah. If this entourage around the idea yeah. Uh, yeah. is with these particular seven factors, yeah, yeah. then uh, we can speak of yeah. that particular yeah. Uh, yeah. view. Yeah. Uh? Okay, but now, okay, I I just want to continue now. Okay, but other suttas will give us the idea of what is the content of the supramundane right view. And we have this in the standard definition elsewhere when the Buddha defines the path factors, what is right view, and what is the answer that he always gives. What is the answer? I thought you... Well, that's too general. There's always one precise, one exact definition that we have. Right. It's 
knowledge of suffering, knowledge of the origin of suffering, knowledge of the cessation of suffering, knowledge of the way to the cessation of suffering. That's the knowledge or understanding or seeing of the Four Noble Truths. But now this is the interwork that's interesting because the knowledge or understanding of the Four Noble Truths takes place first in stages, in stages of practice. And in the early stages of practice, when one is practicing the pasano or insight, then one is understanding to some extent the first two noble truths, and maybe by way of inference all four truths we can say. And so this too is a kind of mundane right view. We could say the conceptual understanding of the Four Noble Truths or the partial understanding of the Four Noble Truths, the partial experiential understanding of the Four Noble Truths through the practice of insight meditation. As one sees into the impermanent and unsatisfactory nature, the empty nature of the five aggregates, one is gaining some insight into the first noble truth, then through investigation one can see how suffering arises from craving and grasping, so one sees the second noble truth. But when this practice of insight reaches full maturity, then one arrives at the supramundane noble path and it's with the supramundane noble path that one sees directly the ultimate, the unconditioned truth that is Nibbana, the third noble truth. So it's the, what one is seeing with this taintless supramundane noble right view is Nibbana or the unconditioned element. And then through that seeing of the unconditioned, one is also understanding all four noble truths simultaneously. mundane right view, or mundane right view will include first this foundational right view, the understanding of karma and its fruits, the retribution for action, and mundane right view will also include conceptual and partial experiential understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And supermundane right view will then be the complete experiential penetration of the Four Noble Truths through the direct scene of the unconditioned element, Nibbana. 
Wait, I'll repeat that just to show how it lines up. Okay, we have mundane right view. Okay, so we have the mundane right view as the two aspects. First, the basic moral right view, which is understanding the principles of karma and its fruits, the, say, the law of moral action and its results. And then this conceptual, partial understanding of the Four Noble Truths through study, reflection, and practice of insight meditation. Then when insight reaches maturity, the mundane right view is superseded by the supramundane right view, which grants a direct and full penetration of all Four Noble Truths through the direct penetration of Nibbana, the unconditioned. Okay. I was going to ask, is the supramundane right view only a property of the Arahant? Or of no, the no. Okay. The supramundane right view, we have to come back to this definition. In fact, I'd say, from one angle, it's not the property of the Arahant. From one angle it is, but it's one who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. But didn't you say it was Anasava? That's an interesting point. Important and interesting point. It's Anasava in a technical sense, not <laughs> in that it belongs only to the Arhan, but it's Anasava in that it's in no way connected with the asavas, these root defilements that sustain the round of rebirth. It is in fact the right view which brings about the eradication or uprooting of the asavas. That's why it's called anasava. I think that is a beautiful stanza I remember, at least the second part. To know is to uncover craving. That has something to do with that. To see is to have done with owning. Because, and that is a reason why I don't like so much the view, right opinion maybe, but view has always something to do with dasana, with seeing. Exactly, yeah. And therefore I'm not so happy with it. Yeah. Mundane right opinion, while super mundane view. Yeah, but view, I think, has a, in English, it's flexible in English enough flexible, to cover both opinion and seeing. Yeah. Yeah. But Dikti is more translated as opinion internationally. Well, some of us translate it as view. <laughs> some of us translate it as view. <laughs> some of us. But when you translate it in other languages, yeah, you yeah. know, we are not coming yeah, to... Yeah, yeah. We have male view and so that is gone up like Asana, no? But, but, but I, I, I would like to get to the point, alright then, is, is supramundane right view possessed by the Pututana? No. Okay, but let me come, at least finish up this paragraph, which everybody is jumping the gun so I can't <laughs> um, explain. Okay, now what is interesting about this, oh, I'm using that more than about, but it is, <laughs> about this paragraph is that when it defines right view, 
instead of giving the content, you could say the objective content of the view, which is what, in my interpretation, what I've just explained, it collates a number of terms found elsewhere in the suttas in connection with other training factors. Now, we have five faculties, five indriyas. Do you remember what they are? Say again. Okay. Okay. Faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, panya, wisdom. So the five faculties the Buddha takes, the faculty of wisdom, and he equates that with the supramundane right view. Then we have the set the five powers. What are they? The five balas. The same as the five faculties. So of the five powers the Buddha takes, Panya Bala, the power of wisdom, equates that with right view, supermanane right view. We have seven factors of enlightenment. Okay, we don't have to go through all seven, but the second of these is Dhamma Vichya, investigation of phenomena, investigation of states. That is equated with the supermundane right view. And then the Noble Eightfold Path, we have the path factor right view. That is brought in here.
one who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. So in other words, when one, a person is on the path of stream entry, the path to the stage of once returning, this path to the stage of non-returning, the path to the stage of arhant, then he's developing the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path and the right view that he's developing at that stage, that is the supramundane, taintless, noble right view. It's getting late. I will have to go over this again and maybe expand on it a little more next next week. But I think next week is that the Poya thing? It's the ninth. So it will be two weeks, the sixteenth. So the unique quality the unique quality of the Sutra, yeah. the distinction between the Monday and the Monday. Yeah, that's what I feel. Now when you think of it uh, well, actually, one would say that the four Iddipadas are already included in the supramundane path. But they're not mentioned here, so I don't want to bring, bring them in. We could say, anyway, we could say that the supramundane path is always connected with the four Iddipadas. They are also present as factors <coughs> in the path. But that's a rather technical point. Any any questions now on anything that's been dealt with? This is a rather rather technical and difficult sutra. As I've been saying, the super mundane path is not only the arhant. The super mundane path is the path developed by one who is moving from the stage of Putujana to the stage of Arhat, the stage of whirling to the stage of liberated one. And this supermundane path comes in the four stages, the path leading to stream entry, the path leading to once returner, path leading to non-returner, path leading to Arhat. I will go sort of retrace the steps and go in somewhat explain it somewhat more fully next time to try to make that clear. But if there's any questions that um, arise on anything dealt with just now, please feel free. Yes. One cannot fall from the super mundane path back to the stage of a whirlwind. But at the same, when the noble person, the partly enlightened person, is not actually cultivating the, no, the super mundane noble eightfold path, he still has the mundane path. As we will see, the fact is, because he'll still have, say, this mundane right view. He doesn't give up the mundane right view. And he doesn't give up mundane right intention. He doesn't give up mundane right speech. He'll be practicing when cultivating the path, the supramundane path, then what will be operative will be the supramundane path factors. And the mundane path factors will be, you could say, in a state of abeyance. 
but when he comes back to normal day-to-day activities, then he still has these no, these mundane path factors. Say again. Yeah, is which kamaradama? When one is developing the path. Yeah. Generally, one would say that it's not. It's not kama as ordinarily understood. And it doesn't bring its fruits or not the long-range, long-term results of kama as when one is practicing the path of merit, meritorious deeds. It's, you could still say in one way that it's kama, in that it's action, intentional action, but the fruits will mature right here and now. It's not something that will come to maturity only in some future life. Excuse me, is there an analogy here with the, the practice of the jhanas? Because in the jhanas, yeah. the defilements are temporarily suppressed. Yeah. You, you, you yeah. keep using the phrase, when he is practicing the path. Yeah. Yeah. So, I say in the jhanas, the defilements are temporary, temporarily suppressed, but they're not being eradicated. Whereas the specific function of the noble, supermanane, noble eightfold path is to eradicate, to actually root out and destroy the defilement. I think finally one has to ponder a little bit about that. So since you have to let go the ethical, how much more the unethical, there you can see the difference. So we all have to cultivate a lot of ethical because there is a lot of unethical still there. So here, I see one can have understanding, but still uh, keeping what the Bodhi said, some of the mundane good actions, because one doesn't need of it. Yeah. Uh, so I say even the Arahant still has the mundane Eightfold Path in that he still has these eight factors, he has the mundane right view, he still, he doesn't have to cultivate right thought, but naturally the right thoughts will occur, naturally he has right speech, right action, right livelihood, um, he doesn't have to make an effort anymore, but he still has energy, which you could say is sort of spontaneous or natural right effort, he'll still practice right mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, Still, he'll enter into the four jhanas, and so he still has these mundane path factors. Can he at will will, uh, go to the ninth and tenth path factor? Right? Knowledge? That will come later. Let us take it when it comes. Let us take it. Liberation? That comes later. Okay, I think we should stop now and then continue in two weeks on the sixth. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.